Today on The Black Goat, we talk about public trust in science. Where does it come from? Why it matters? And do we deserve it? And a letter about applying for jobs when your focus is methods and not a topic. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. With me, as always, are Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And I'm just going to shut up for the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> See, now everything falls apart when Sanjay yeah, shuts right. up. <laughs> so we were, we were talking before we started recording about how I, I introduced the thing, I introduced the main segment... And you tell I think people that, to rate us on iTunes. I tell, yeah, yeah, and I think that that liter- <laughs> that like literally makes the one man talking the most on our podcast, which is such a fucking cliche. But I'm also like, I try to be conscious of not dominating conversations because I know I tend to do that. Um, I appreciate it because <laughs> I do not like have, being responsible for conversations. I hate when like I'm like clearly the most senior people in the person in the room, and everyone else is like looking to me to like keep things going smoothly and make put everyone at ease and I'm like don't look at me <laughs> yeah that's funny I I mean I think that like segues are one of the most awkward forms of communication and um, transportation and oh. <laughs> that took me a second <laughs> yeah like whenever like if I'm in class and it's a discussion-based class I just like I don't even try to make nice segues. I just say, okay, let's talk about the next thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just like have long awkward or like silences that I don't experience as awkward, but apparently everyone else does, which would not be good for a podcast. So mm-hmm. I appreciate but, Sanjay's leadership. But I also do area. think that um, Sanjay's voice is objectively the best one. So yeah, that's true. If we're going to have one that's dominating. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, yeah, I did have you ever thought about voice acting, Sanjay? I feel like you could get paid for that voice. I did radio in college, and I have like there. My wife found some old like sound check cassette tapes sitting around the house, and she's threatening to play them for our son. And I'm going to be super embarrassed. Nice, cool to hear my like 19 year old self. But no, I think one thing that people we've kind of like we we've, we've some of this was through explicit discussion. Some of this was just kind of naturally settle, settling into roles. But I think. People who listen to the podcast don't realize since I, I've sort of fallen into this role, like I do the introductions, blah, blah, blah. So so I'm more kind of uh, salient when you listen to the podcast. But like Alexa does all of our production and people can't it's tell. It's not and... easy because at least I'm like terrible <laughs> at providing high quality recordings. Like I mess up one out of three times at least. <laughs> right. Like if you if you listen to the podcast and and, and the sound sounds bad, that, that is my fault. because... Samin or I fucked up so badly that Alexa couldn't clean it up. It's not because of the yeah. editing. <laughs> Except for that one time that there was just a chunk missing in the middle of the episode. That was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was I, only I your fault to the that... extent that like Sanjay and I didn't bother to check or do any <laughs> put any work into producing the episode either. So. Yeah, we don't we don't actually listen to these before we put them up to the world. Alexa does, but the rest of us. Yeah, no, I I do like I think because I'm I'm doing more of the kind of like move things along, introduce topics that I, I think I'm more visible is a weird word. I keep wanting to say visible for a podcast, but anyway, visible metaphorically and that people don't realize how much work uh, Alexa, Alexa does. Yeah. And, and Samin checks the Doesn't Twitter account no. <laughs> and um, posts cute pictures of Hugo. All of the Twitter is done by me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I do the Instagram. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. I sort of like, I think Samin and I do the most uh, with a Twitter account, but I sort of, I like how it just looks like the voice of the black goat, not like a, a single individual, because that, I, I don't know, for me, that sometimes is just kind of funny. Yeah, I like, feel bad because I called out somebody who tweeted about how there's black goats during the breaks on the Great British Baking Show, and I was like, those are not goats, those are sheep. <laughs> and I was like, Wait, <laughs> people are going to think like Sanjay's being a jerk to this poor person who's being oh, no. really I'm nice. sure I'm sure they could tell oh that's funny 
<laughs> so I went to to shift topics. I'm going to do the thing Alexa does. Uh, let's talk about something else. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's talk about me. No, I went to a concert this last weekend in Portland. Uh, I went to with my family to see the Avett Brothers, and it was a great show. But it was it was the most Portland thing because it's like it was at this outdoor amphitheater kind of place, and it was like I think it holds like a thousand people or something, and nine hundred and ninety-eight people were white, and so it was no, nine hundred ninety-seven. It was me, and my son, and one Asian dude I spotted in the audience, and and that was it. Um, and uh, anyway, it was just sort of a I don't know. I was tweeting about it, but it was kind of a, a funny experience. It's I mean Portland's super white anyway, but it is interesting to go to like some kind of a show or performance where you're clearly different in some way. And it doesn't just have to be race and ethnicity. I experience this a lot with age where it's yeah. like I'm the, the old guy at the show and it's like, oh, I really like these performers, but clearly mm -hmm. this is not, I'm not the like the center of their target audience. I feel like that's so weird. Like I feel like you have to go to a musician who's like, 20 years older than you to be in a crowd of people who are the same age as you like if you go to a musician who is like you would be sense. like their target demographic then still the demographic of the people at the concert are still like 10 years younger than that i guess but that makes sense right? are younger and also like you start listening to music at a younger age than people typically perform music so it makes sense no to me that there's but that's well that's not exactly what i mean i just mean that like even if you like the the people who go to concerts are younger than the, the I see. demographic the of the... I see. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true, right? Because people, people who have time on their hands to go to concerts... Mm -hmm. I know, we're going to... Chris and I are going to a concert uh, um, tomorrow night, which will be several days before the recording uh, comes out. Um, it's a band called Japanese Breakfast. And oh, yeah, the, I know that. Yeah, so she's, Michelle Zauner is kind of, it's one of these things where it's the name of the band, but it's kind of just her project. But anyway, oh, okay. um, so she's from Eugene. And so I'm going to be super curious what the crowd is like, because I, I'm not even sure if she kind of got how much of her career was started before she kind of moved away from Eugene. But it's totally like local person coming back to their hometown. And so I wonder if it's going to be cool. like all her friends at the show or something like that. Yeah, that sounds really mm -hmm. fun. You seem to go to a lot of shows, Sanjay. I feel like I'm making up for lost time because I've I've always loved live music, and uh, when you know when my son was younger, we just couldn't get out of the house very much. And I, but Eugene is so you know Eugene doesn't get a lot of the biggest acts. We get some now, but not a lot. But it's a great place to see shows because they're cheap and the venues are small. Because we're kind of like. You know, bands, a lot of times we'll get bands that are like going from San Francisco to Portland or Seattle or vice versa. And they'll, you know, they'll do a stop in Eugene on their way. So we get pretty good acts, but you can be like right up close and whatever. So so there's some benefits to living in kind of like a medium sized college town. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's nice. I feel the way about shows that I feel about museums. Like I'm supposed to appreciate and enjoy them so much more than I do. And I'm just like, when can I leave? Like, when is it okay to go? <laughs> I just, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if it's my introversion or being a control freak, but I'm just like, now I am supposed to be here and enjoy this and I have no choice. And I feel very like, I don't know. Like it's on not on my schedule or my whatever. Like I like mm -hmm. enjoying things when I want to enjoy them and how I want to enjoy them. So I like doing things at home better. Yeah. I'm weird. You need musicians to just like show up <laughs> yeah, in the right. house. And then leave when call. I tell them to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that Maybe that's like the next version of like Uber and Lyft. Like the next sort of disrupt technology is an app yeah, that right. you can say, I'm in the mood for some live music. Click. Yeah, right, bring right. them to my house right now. <laughs> <laughs> you got some like strumming or, you know, mm -hmm. the like. The, the violin person at the romantic restaurant showing up at your house playing you a, a sad mm -hmm. song or something. <laughs> I guess it's not sad song. Anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. That was kind of a weird <laughs> observation. Anyhow, should we do the letter? Yep. Um, yeah. Nice transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <It is. laughs> okay. Uh, Dear the Black Goat, 
I'm a graduate student in the UK, and I will be uh, soon be entering the final year of my PhD. When I hear about graduate students getting postdocs in their first faculty positions, the subject area is usually very similar to your PhD project, and you usually get pigeonholed as a particular type of psychologist. However, I'm not convinced that I want to continue in my particular subject area. Throughout my PhD, I have focused on learning different methodologies, for example, EEG and eye tracking, um, learning R and Python for data analysis, and consistently using open science practices. This, this has allowed me to collaborate on projects completely different to my PhD research. One of my advisors commented that this might look weird on the prospective job market, as people will wonder what type of psychologist are you. Do you have any advice on how I could sell my research skills without having a specific subject area? And what would your impression be if I was to apply for a position in one of your labs? Yours sincerely, an academic nomad. Um, so this is kind of interesting to me because uh, I guess I was was not quite in this boat, but almost where um, getting a job was around the time that I started sort of changing my research interests. Um, and I, it sounds like this person wants to end up getting a job or a postdoc, um, focusing on something that's pretty different than what they previously did. Um, or even without having a specific subject area. Right. Like. Um, so selling themselves more as like a methodologist, but being able to then tackle different subjects than they've tackled before. Um, mm -hmm. I took a different approach where I just continued to say that I was one kind of researcher until I got my job <laughs> and then it was a bait and switch. Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to do it is to wait until after you have a pretty secure job, not necessarily have tenure, but like be on a tenure track at a place where it's pretty straightforward to get tenure. Like I think in the UK, once you have a, a permanent job, it's pretty likely that you'll be able to stay there. So I mean, from a practical standpoint, that's like the easier time to make the switch. So if you can kind of pitch yourself as a, mm -hmm. having a specific subject area, get a job and then start moving towards other things, that's probably the most practical mm -hmm. thing, but that's... When, yeah. I mean, so I guess it's a little bit of a different question if you're hiring a postdoc versus a faculty member. Um, I've never hired a postdoc. Um, I guess you guys have thought about this before. Um, I've never hired a postdoc either. Yeah, me either. Hmm. Well, if you were to hire a postdoc, would you <laughs> uh, would you care a lot about the person's substantive area? I feel like we're not the right people to ask. I mean, right. I feel like I have I have opinions about what other people would do, and that that's more relevant. So, like, I would rather have somebody who's a methodologist and has a substantive area, but I don't think that's how most of my colleagues would feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think people. I don't know. I think there is a way for, I think people understand that postdocs are training experiences and, and there there is kind of like a, a precedent and a narrative for postdocs sort of, you know, sort of building in a new area mm -hmm. or, you know, as not, not a complete like just right angle turn, but kind of a, a change in some ways. And I think, you know, when I see people hiring for postdocs, there's a lot of variability, but I think a lot of times they do want a skill set because they want somebody to work on a particular project. So especially if it's a postdoc for like a funded grant and they need specific skills for that. And if you're also sort of like, yeah, good at running projects and that kind of thing. I think what you would want to get across, though, is that you, even if you don't, feel like you have much of a direction now um that you you're interested in sort of a sustained effort in the direction that the lab is going in so you know if if it seems like yeah i'm always just going to be kind of wandering from project to project that's one thing if it's like oh i i've focused on acquiring a lot of these different skills and all all of them or many of them will be applicable and i really now want to spend the next few years working on X where X is in the ballpark of what the lab is doing. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that would be a way to, to sort of present yourself. So I don't think it's, it's hopeless. I should also just comment that, you know, I, I think it's good for us to sort of respond to the letter at face value, but people often don't realize they think they're less coherent than they are. So that's mm -hmm. just something for this person to keep in mind that they may mm -hmm. feel like they're all over the place, but um, to somebody who's not them or like somebody who's like in the weeds as deep as they are, they're really, specific work they may actually look more coherent than they they think they do yeah and my general advice is to up 
your coherence in your applications. Like I, I know yeah. I wish the world wasn't that way, but I do think that to the extent that you can present yourself as more coherent than you see yourself as being, or than you really are without misrepresenting anything. I think that's the right, the like practical thing to do in a job application, especially for a faculty position, maybe less mm -hmm. so for a postdoc. But unfortunately I do think you would be, it'd be very, very, very hard to get a job if your research statement was, I don't have a subject area. I like a lot of different things. My skill is to like develop strong methodological training in different areas so I can ask lots of different questions. Like that's just mm -hmm. at, on every search committee I've been on. Unfortunately, that would not have gotten you anywhere. Right. And I think it's unfortunate because like, so in my department, we have a quantitative psychology area. And so mm -hmm. we hire people who just have statistical expertise. I mean, not just like, but that's their selling point. But we would, I don't know of any department that would hire somebody who has methodological expertise. It's not stats, but like design and methods and stuff like that, you, which like, I think I don't get why stats is so special. I think you see a little bit of that with neuroscience positions. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I think like positions are often touted as being specifically a neuroscience position and places are looking for somebody who does fMRI or they do psychophys mm -hmm. and are less, I, I'm not sure if it would go over well still in those situations to say, I don't have like a topic area. I mm -hmm. just do fMRI or I just do psychophys, right. but I think you can definitely get away much more with saying like your specialty is the methodology and you have like a couple of different topics that you work on or something. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. But I, do I will also say in other areas like that I'm familiar with, they want you to have a substantive subject and, and topic that's your theme, but having the methodological expertise is definitely a plus. Like I think it's really helps job candidates if they can mm -hmm. say, you know, this is my topic with my theme. These are the questions I want to answer. But here are the different methods I'm an expert in that I've used to try to answer my question. And if you have more than one and if you're really good at them, I think that will definitely help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's sort of a matter of just like speaking the language of um, of the job market, right? We're used to mm -hmm. advertising jobs as being in a subject area um, and presenting ourselves as candidates as being in a certain subject area. And so I think... If you sort of um, get away from those conventions, then you risk like sort of speaking past the people who you're trying to talk to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the you know the the there's I, I don't want to push this too far because I think I, I agree that like the sort of the the traditional way of looking quote unquote programmatic um is in in a sort of like line of substantive research is kind of like this canonical thing that a lot of people have in their minds i do i do wonder sometimes so i think there are other things about this this letter that would you know would concern me like the person saying they don't have first authored publications which they should definitely try to get and i think that's a way of not only looking programmatic in terms of a subject but also just demonstrating that like you can lead a project uh, from beginning to end and and that kind of thing but setting that aside like i do wonder sometimes we overestimate how much things are and i wonder how much like I, it would be really and of course like you know i'm i'm not going to volunteer to do this well i don't have to now but like it would be interesting to see someone try to sell themselves as a fox instead of a hedgehog and to say, you know what, I'm mm -hmm. I'm going to I'm going all in on this. This is, you know, this is what I do. And I'm going to I'm not going to like pretend to have like one line of research, but I'm going to stand up there and I'm going to say this is what makes me yeah. me, and, and I'm still productive and I'm still contributing intellectually. And if, if all those other things were in place. Right. I, like, so I have seen those applicants and I mean, this I could definitely be wrong. This is just anecdote. But this is what I think happens is. A, everyone thinks, look, so if they present themselves like my skill is that I have, I'm good at a lot of different methods and so on. Everybody thinks that about themselves. So everyone's like, that's not special. Like we're all methodologists. We're all blah, blah. And then they don't have anyone on the search committee that's like, this is my person doing my area of work. So that there's no one championing them. And to the extent that there is. So like if I try to champion like a methods oriented person or something like that, like if, if a social cog person champions a social cog candidate, everyone who's not social cog will be like, oh, well, the social cog people think they're good, so they must be good at that. But if a methods 
person tries to champion a methods candidate, everyone else does feel like they're in a position to judge for themselves and isn't like, oh, well, that's their area, so we're going to defer to their judgment, which is probably good, but it just puts the candidate at a huge disadvantage because there isn't this, like, subgroup of the department that can be like, we want this person, trust us, this is our area, and then the rest of the department goes, okay, fine, it's your turn, you get your person. Yeah, so so the... This may be, and I don't know which is more typical, but the the dynamics in my department don't usually look like that. Like we don't usually mm-hmm. have people kind of like pulling for people like me in in mm-hmm. quite that way. Um, I mean, to some extent, obviously, yeah, but um, not as strongly. I think there's also, you know, I mean, going I'm back exaggerating, to what you st- but I don't want to yeah. make it sound like my departments are extreme in that way. Yeah, departments I've been in. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, you know, I see people champion people who aren't connected to them but just they like them for x or y reason but but also i think that you know something you know when you talked about like having a quant area i think this is a difference that might go away to some extent which is there's a difference between saying like i'm a stats person and i have original scholarship on statistics versus saying i'm a methods person and it just means i'm good at these methods Mm -hmm. and i think there hasn't been for a long time there wasn't a lot of non-stats you know, non, not purely quantitative kind of methods scholarship in psychology. And I, I feel like we're having a period I, where that's changing. Can and, I say something? Sorry. Yeah, go I ahead. I just want to say something controversial. It's going to get me in trouble. But honestly, I think the value of quantitative psychologists is not mostly their original scholarship. To be honest, like the ones who are doing things that are pushing the edge of our stats knowledge, like I'm obviously probably that has benefits that I'm unaware of. But I think their value to their colleagues in their department is that they can teach core quantitative skills way better than other people can. They can help us on our research. They can collaborate. We can use our data and their tools to come up with new ways to answer questions, things like that. Like It's, it's interesting because we do hire them based on their publishing cutting edge stuff that that we don't understand, that only quant people understand. But like so much of their value at least to the non-quant community, which maybe isn't the right way to evaluate their value, but the really good ones are so helpful at like sharing yeah. things that are not necessarily the things that they've developed, that they've discovered themselves, but just making the tools that other people have created accessible to more people and so on. So that, I mean, that that's that's consistent with what I'm saying, I think, which is that to sell yourself at the front end as... I'm an ex candidate, you have to show I do ex scholarship. Right. And so and and that that hasn't been and that's how the quant people often get in. So they're not selling themselves as I'm a right. great collaborator who will consult on your grant. I mean, they are saying that and people like that, but they also have to be able to say, Yeah, I I do quant scholarship. And so I think the I think that route might be opening up possibly for for methods people that yeah. there I, I feel like we're in a period where there's kind of a, a renaissance of methods scholarship more broad than theorems and simulations and proofs and that kind of thing um, yeah. yeah I guess what I was saying is I'm kind of I think it's kind of unfortunate that that's the case that you have to sell yourself as like developing original things especially in stats I mean in methods I don't know but in stats like I wish that we could hire people because they're really good at implementing and sharing and training people in methods that aren't necessarily the ones that they invented or developed. Um, like it, I, I just think the emphasis on, well, what have you done that nobody else had ever done before? I mean, you could say the same thing about substantive areas and I would say the same thing about substantive areas. Like you should be able to get a job saying I've made other people's ideas better and implemented them in better ways and made them more accessible and mm-hmm. made incremental progress on other people's theories or tools or whatever. Um, but yeah, I agree that like given that the world is such that you have to have your own original scholarship in your area, it would be it's good that there are starting to be opportunities to do that for methods. But it would also be in a perfect world nice if you didn't have to necessarily do that, but could just say I'm really really good at the things that other people have you know developed or whatever. Yeah, right. Sorry. So for have ranting. we <laughs> <laughs> have we helped academic nomad? Um, <laughs> Uh, I think their situation is objectively hard. Like I don't, I don't have a lot of good advice because I think it's going to be a tough road. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, it depends a little bit on whether they are, um, it sounds like they, yeah, it sounds like they're considering postdocs and faculty positions. I think it depends a lot on which one. So I Mm -hmm. think 
yeah, presenting yourself as somebody who has a lot of methodological expertise and is like sort of open in terms of topic area seems like it would fly a lot better um, applying for postdocs than applying for jobs. Um, and if that's what the person ends up doing, um, it could work out really well to get a postdoc and maybe um, figure out more of a substantive area or think of ways to frame yourself on the job market that are more centered around some substantive area. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah. Or like yeah, move to one of the few universities with a methods area that's not <laughs> right. just stats. Right. Yeah. How do you like Tilbury? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that's totally right, Alexa. And, and I think that's something if they do a postdoc that they can, I think a postdoc gives you potentially, if it's not like a one-year postdoc, I think they can, I think it's not too late to sort of like work on the same thing now for a year or two, get a first author paper or two or more in that area, and I, I don't think it's too late. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Academic Nomad, for your letter. And if you're listening and you want to get in touch with us uh, with a letter to discuss on an episode, or just if you want to reach all three of us, you can email us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, you can find us online in all manner of ways. We're on Twitter at Black Goat Pod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod. Also, we were talking about this before the episode. We don't post much to the Instagram because we're not all together at the same time. And uh, But if you want more pictures of Samin's dog, Hugo, or anything else, <laughs> let us know if there's like I stuff also you have want cats. On the let's not forget about my cats. <laughs> Well, you forget it. I never <laughs> I see your cats on Instagram. <laughs> well, they're hiding now because of the dog. Yeah, but follow us on Instagram and tell us uh, uh, what you want to see from from the Black Goat Pod or if you, if you don't want to see anything. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and thank you everybody for listening. We really appreciate uh, people who listen, people who send us feedback and, and agree with us, disagree with us, uh, send us letters, you know, any, any of that is all always appreciated cool so our main topic we wanted to talk about today is public trust in science and kind of the the motivation to do this was um there was a, a i think generally really good article in the atlantic about the brian wansink case but it ended mm -hmm. with this line about public trust is declining and this is the public trust in science is declining. I mean, maybe public trust in general is declining too. Uh, or I should say, well, I shouldn't say public too because will to so. Live. So this is something that a lot of people say, and it turns out if you look at the survey data, I think the 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 simple answer is it's not true, and I think there's a slightly more complicated answer in the survey data, which is it's not true, but it's kind of complicated. But it's something that I think a lot of scientists think is true, feel, and, and we might talk about why people might feel that way even, even without it being true. But also, it kind of uh, led us to wanting to talk about, in general, this issue of public trust because it's something that we all care about and something a lot of researchers care about. So in a lot of discussions of public trust in science, I feel like there's this underlying assumption that we deserve public trust. And so the conversation right. ends up being about how to protect yeah. the science's reputation and how to keep public trust high. Whereas like, I feel like, no, the conversation should be about like how to let the public know the information they need in order to calibrate their trust appropriately and not start with the assumption that science as a, as it's practice deserves public yeah. trust. So there's also like science, the idea as a like, way to produce knowledge versus science as it's practiced, which mm -hmm. I trust the former a lot and the latter, it goes up and down. Yeah, um, I know what you mean. Um, I feel like there's this sort of assumption sometimes when people are talking about trust in science that the goal is to maximize trust in science. Um, and I, yeah, ideally the goal is to make science as good as possible and then, and then potentially trust follows uh, it feels like sort of putting the cart before the horse to say like, yeah. okay, let's persuade people to believe in science, and then like, um, and then the the quality of science is secondary. Um, but yeah, I so I'm there's the question of public trust in science, um, but I'm also curious like whether you feel like your trust in science 
is declining. <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> I'm about not that sure that if you guys want to answer that question. Well, the, but. I was thinking that I would like to create an experience sampling survey for myself or a daily diary survey for myself because mm-hmm. I'm really curious how my own cynicism has changed over time because so on twitter the other day someone mentioned that i've been especially like cranky lately they didn't use that (laughs) word they used an emoji that i don't know how to translate into words um and i was like yeah i definitely feel that way i feel like i'm at peak cynicism (laughs) about science but and, and it's related to other things happening in politics and so on but just about like powerful people including in science and so yeah, like I, it's interesting. I, I like texted a friend the other day. Like I've never been more convinced that there's a crisis in science, and I usually don't use that word in public. And I don't. I'm fine saying there's no crisis, you know, like whatever. But like I'm not saying I am convinced there's a crisis. I don't know if that word is appropriate. But on a continuum from like definitely not a crisis to like maybe crisis is an appropriate word, I'm at the closest to the upper end that I've been in a long time even though things are changing so much for the better. So I think it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting question. Like, what, what, yeah. is, what is making my feelings change? It doesn't seem to be tracking the reality of things out there. So that's an interesting question. Like, is that true for other people too? Does right. the public's trust or perception that science is working well track reality over time? Like, are changes over time meaningful? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I would say that... Um, there's two different ways that you could ask me the question where I would give very different answers. So if you were to ask me um, what amount of faith would you put in a given scientific claim, like a random scientific claim that somebody makes? So if somebody's like, hey, I read in a science article this thing, do you believe that thing to be true? I would say very low. Like, So if somebody says like, oh, I learned that this thing causes cancer or like, um this like diet is bad or um this happens in the brain i'm just gonna be like no those are like a particularly (laughs) particular particular kinds of things that i don't believe um but i do think that probably and uh this sort of so we watched the uh naomi oreskes is do you know how to say her name um ted talk and i think that's right yeah And she talks about how uh, we often make this distinction between science and faith, but actually oftentimes scientists are making leaps of faith when they are believing in in scientific claims. Um, And so I have this like faith in science as an epistemology. And I don't know if that has really declined. So I think it's like worthwhile to invest in science um, and worthwhile to improve science. I don't think that we should abandon it as an, as an epistemology. And so that's why I feel so invested in, um, in science and science reform. Uh, but yes, my trust, of, my trust of individual findings is quite low. Yeah, so I, we should, we'll, we'll definitely link the, the TED Talk in our show notes. This may be the first and last time we link yeah. a TED Talk. But it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. So, so just to sort of, for people listening, who have probably haven't watched it yet, just to kind of summarize, she, she, you know, she poses this question, like, why should we trust science and scientists? And she kind of, uh, so, you know, the first part of the talk, she's sort of setting that up. The second part, she kind of goes through why you might think we should and why uh, she says we, we are at there and actually not good reasons, which is she talks about sort of like, you think the scientific method is valid, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, I, I think you don't have to buy 100% everything she's saying in the middle, but but um, certainly she raises a lot of critiques about, like, there's not a sort of single, complete, valid, like, this is the scientific method from philosophy of science or anything else. Um, but she, you know, she also says, in addition to that, like, even, you know, well, okay, I'm going to add an even if, I don't think she even says this, but that it's also just not possible to have enough expertise to even if there were like a valid way to to determine things as a person and she also says and this is absolutely true that even scientists can't evaluate each other's work on purely sort of technical or or whatever grounds because Mm -hmm. we just don't have the expertise Um, if I you know I pick up a paper from neuroscience or or computer science or anywhere else and and I can't look at that paper and and vet it myself um Mm -hmm. let alone if i read something about like relativity theory or astronomy or something like that and so so you know she says that ultimately this is kind of where she concludes is that 
ultimately it comes down to an argument from authority which is really weird and I think produces an allergic reaction in a lot of people who think of themselves as skeptical. Um, but it's a special kind of authority. And it's because we, and I'm filling in a little bit of my interpretation here true too, but that it's, it's because of scientists checking each other's work. It's because of how, it's because of, you know, the she doesn't quote Merton, but the sort of Mertonian idea of organized skepticism, right? That that she, we we trust it because experts are, you know, looking at it. She also says it's not the authority of any one individual; it's the authority of the collective community. And so she talks about consensus as a really important source of like scientific knowledge that we consider that we know something when the scientific community had there, and there's a consensus around it, which was really interesting to me to think about. Because coming back to this idea of like, should we be airing our dirty laundry in public? Like, should the replicability you know, crisis or whatever you want to call it, should we be like telling the public that we're we have these doubts? And her talk, like when she talks about how the authority of the scientific community, that the fact that there's consensus in the scientific community is why the public should trust us. That's why we need to have these things in public because the whole point for those of us who feel like there's a really big problem in our field, we want to say to the public, like there is no longer a consensus about some of the things we thought we were sure about. Some of the things we've put in textbooks that we put as like things to base public policy off of and so on. We can't do that privately. We can't just say, by the way, you know, whisper at conferences, like I don't believe this effect or I don't think when those effects are being presented to the public as reasons why they should trust us, right? We're putting our credibility on the line and so I think it's important when there, when the consensus falls apart, when there is a lack of consensus in a scientific community, for that to be public so that if the critics are right and that was not a credible claim, then the community still has some credibility because we can say, look, we caught this. We were aware, we were self-critical, and there wasn't, you know, there was consensus for a while, and then we realized that maybe there shouldn't be and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we have to, like, be very, very protective of our credibility and where our authority comes from, if she's right, that it comes from this idea of consensus. So that when there is skepticism about an idea that's that people perceive as there being consensus around, that needs to be communicated to right. the public as well. Yeah. Um, I think this idea that, uh, that we could build trust in science by hiding some of these things is such a backwards idea. Like maybe if you're trying to build like, uh, blind faith in something than like hiding the bad things and showing the good things is what you want to do. But if you're trying to build trust, like uh, the idea of doing that in a really non-transparent way seems bizarre to me. And it seems like a very similar, like the same kinds of motivations that people have when they um, are massaging their data in order to like support a finding that they, they already think is true. Right. It's like, um, yeah, if you if you want to build trust, then you need yeah. to be transparent. But if you if you're trying to just like persuade some someone of something that you already believe, um, then that's where like these motivations to be like selective in your reporting and also all of the problems and with that come into play. Yeah, I've been in rooms where people have argued that we should like not be so public about failed replications and things like that. That we need to like hide those things for the sake of public trust right. and. Even first of all, like that decision shouldn't be made based on PR, but even from a purely PR perspective, they're giving more ammunition to critics of science by sweeping things under the rug than we are by by saying there are failed replications. Like, I don't understand how they don't see that they're shooting themselves in the foot, that that argument Mm -hmm. doesn't even if you accept their premise that we should try to maximize public trust for no matter whether it's earned or not. Mm-hmm. That the way you do that is not to hide things that are going to come out anyway. People are going to find out that we were hiding these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- this is this is where because when so I really liked the Oreskes TED Talk, and it's only like whatever fifteen or eighteen minutes or however long a TED Talk is. So I don't, I I suspect that she has a lot more to say about this. But one one of the things I didn't I felt that felt incomplete to me was that there, and this is why I was sort of like tacking on these other things in in my mind as I. As I thought about it, is that I think that the the idea of consensus really needs to be, you know, fleshed out because there's a version mm-hmm. of consensus which is it's just the aggregate version of trust me, I'm a doctor, right? It's trust us because we're doctors. It's um, 
you know, and and that it, it's just like a bunch of people. It, it's not one person saying so; it's a bunch of people saying so. And and I, I'm sure that's not what she meant by it, but I, I think that's sometimes you know the idea like, oh, if we all speak with one voice, that'll be persuasive. And I don't think people buy that because you can have a bunch of people speaking with one voice because they have the same agenda, because they have the mm-hmm. same, they're a community that shares the same biases or blind spots. And so, so instead what it is, it's not a consensus in the sense of an average of voices. It's a community that has its internal dynamics and its its way of organizing itself. And, and that's where... You know, I I think something that that would be really valuable is sort of for people to kind of read as well. And we've we've probably talked about this before is Arthur Lupia's work on why should the public trust science? And in my mind, I think there's a lot of value in marrying these two together. So Lupia's idea is he says, look, you know, what what's what's the point of of science in in the public realm? Why should people pay attention to it? Um, it's it's because a scientific argument isn't trust me because I'm an authority or trust me because I've had a divine revelation or something like that. What it is is you don't have to trust me. I'm going to tell you how I reached this claim. I'm going to give you the reasoning and the evidence, and you can see for yourself how to get to this conclusion. Mm-hmm. But and, actually... And not- I think that a, a community that works that way... So when I say, like, what makes me trust scientific findings that I don't have the technical knowledge to evaluate for myself. It's not that a bunch of people with physics PhDs said so. It's to the extent that I believe that the physics community is working that way, then I will say on average I should. And they're, they're going to occasionally, because they're working that way, they're going to sometimes discover things aren't true. And I shouldn't hold that against them, those individual instances. But on average, the more I see them organizing their community in that way, then I should believe their consensus, not just because it's like 50 people with lab coats instead of one. But mm-hmm. I think there's an important connection between the Lupia um, argument and the Reskis argument, which I hadn't thought of before. So like when you say you trust physicists because they can verify each other's work, right? It's not because you're going to go and verify their work. You're not going to go look at their mm-hmm. data and code and so on, right? Or at least I'm not. So it's not literally that I can go and verify it. It's that they verify they can verify each other's work. So the people within that community. So there is an amount of like trust or my relying on their consensus. And the verification part is important that it happens within the community. But then the trust comes from people who aren't in a position to themselves be able to verify it. But that mm-hmm. actually leads me to another thought, which is this is why diversity within a scientific community is really, really important. Because if a group of physicists, or let's take obstetricians, for example, let's say a group of obstetricians say, this is what pregnant women should do, or, um, and they're all men, and they're all whatever, and they're all rich, you know, I'm going to be less sure that they've questioned each other's claims and thought about, well, what would a person in a different Mm -hmm. social demographic think, and so on. So when a claim is made by a group of people and there are huge gaps in their potential biases or their potential experiences or the angle that they would come from, then I can't trust that verification process as much as if the group is diverse and represents Mm -hmm. different biases and different experiences and so on. Right. Yeah. I think we can, we can talk about trust on so many levels and you can talk about trusting individual sciences or the scientific method. But one level that I think is interesting is trusting like the, um, the, specific system within any given scientific field, right? And so if you trust that a scientific field is functioning in a healthy way, um, then it's much easier to trust the findings that come out of that field. Um, And so like you say, this idea that like the people within that field are able to verify each other's findings or there's a mechanism for that or that kind of thing is encouraged. Um, And that's, I think, also where diversity comes in is, is so important is that if you have a field that has Uh, a diversity of experiences and a diversity of motivations, then consensus becomes more valuable, right? And more Um, impressive. Right. And and I think like, so I agreed with um, Oreski's point about consensus, um, but actually I think some of the things that she says also um, undermine some of the versions of consensus that we do rely on, which are that, yeah, consensus starts to have weight when you have... I mean, I think the bigger the group, the better, and um, the more diverse the group, the better, and also um, the more diverse the motivations of the group, right? But in at least in psychology, often, like, so she makes the point that 
not everybody has the expertise to evaluate others work and i would say within psychology the population of people who are able to and spend the time really critically evaluating each other's work within any field is quite small actually and also many of those people have similar aligned motivations right so like um i don't know uh a group of people that's interested in a particular kind of finding right like probably they want that finding to be true and there's not a lot of people outside that small sub subgroup that are really able to critically evaluate that and i think we're that's starting to change and improve um but a system that's built on that i think consensus loses a lot of value yeah and i think it's it it's even beyond so it has to include diversity within a field but it also has to include making it open and available for people outside of a field or a research community and so mm -hmm. you know i think of the example of like climate science right where you know that to me one of the reasons that that's so credible is because they're willing to engage with critics outside of climate science they're not just saying no 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 you don't have a phd so i'm not going to talk to you um, and and you know they they've put themselves out there and so you see this happening in fields that are engaging on policy and other kinds of applications where they're communicating with real stakeholders some of whom may be hostile to what they're trying to do or or just simply disagree in good faith and if you see them the community engaging with every good faith criticism with every you know every criticism that comes in the form of logic and evidence or talking about it uh, to me that's another one of those cues that says I, you know, I'm going to have more faith in the scientific community that this work is coming out of. So Oreskes is a co-author on the book Merchants of Doubt. So she probably yeah. has something to say about the climate change issue in particular. I haven't read it, but it'd be interesting to say. I'm about a third of the way through. It's oh, yeah. super interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, I think so, you know, when I when I think about like, I, mean, I think this is kind of interesting because it's, yeah, it's consensus might be either the wrong word or it might be like a, a word that needs to be unpacked because it's it's really about trusting the community of scientists that this came out of and mm -hmm. and so yeah it's kind of interesting like when I, when i see something what do i what am i looking for so one thing is just the form of the argument sort of lupia's idea are they presenting the argument in a form where they're saying here's my data, here's, you know, here's how, here's my materials, here's my whatever, you can look it over yourself. Some of it is, are people doing that looking over? And then some of it is like, who are the people that are allowed to do that looking over? And does, does anybody who disagrees have access to it? And if I see all those things in place, then I don't need to be an expert myself. Yeah, because without that, what's to stop a group of people from getting together and say, look, we all have consensus and present a united yeah. front and blah, blah, right? And there's there's a strong incentive for scientific communities to rush to present a united front and to rush to consensus if those other criteria aren't part of what we mean by consensus, right? Because just consensus alone, that's easy. And in fact, mm -hmm. I think some of that happens in psych, especially in areas where we get a lot of media attention, it's like, mm -hmm. well, let's all say that we know the answer to this. And I, I don't think people lie, but I, I think they convince themselves that, yeah, we, we have something to say to the public about this. We all agree. Let's go forward and go public with like how to reduce prejudice or how to make relationships better or how to whatever, like these topics mm -hmm. that the public is yearning for an answer from. There's a lot of forces pushing to rush to consensus. So we need these other criteria that Sanjay was talking about. Like, okay, but did you hold yourself to a very high standard and was there accountability within your community before you could come to that consensus? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. In the Atlantic article, there's a quote from Wansink that says, um, having people say, I do something differently because of your research and it works, takes away the sting of someone pointing out the degrees of freedom in an F test were wrong. <laughs> and I mean, and I think like there's a, so if we're sort of like trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, like I understand this idea that like there's sort of like a big picture and sometimes, you know, if you're really confident in the big picture, then a couple of like, like small problems with the details are, are not going to totally undermine that. Um, but of, of course, like I guess where people differ is the extent to which these small problems can add up to really, really good reason to doubt these big claims um and like in this case i think 
I think that that's the situation that we're in. But um, yeah, I mean, if the goal is to have people like act differently because of your scientific claims, that's not that hard. Like you couldn't just say something people want to hear and like tell them to go out and eat chocolate every day because it'll make them live longer or whatever. And then people will be like, oh, wait, wait, that- wait. that's that's 100 percent true. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> like, I feel like that clearly can't be the standard, right? Like. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the I think well evaluated application is such an important mm-hmm. criterion, right? Mm-hmm. So so yeah, like just changing people's behavior might be easy, but you know showing showing that a, a theory and and sort of bringing it to the poli- to I'm not saying because not all theories would do this, right? And and they don't certainly don't have to. But when something is brought to an area of controversial application, like a, a public policy or something, that can be a really good opportunity to test it but that's very different than just like oh yeah i've gotten like anecdotally people tell me that you know my you know whatever my green coffee colon cleanse changed their life or something yeah but so this is like a very very broad question but i'm curious like what's the answer to once something once we say something is you know good like the fact if research can be applied that's great but it's not necessary but once we and I agree with that. But once we say it's good, then that creates an incentive for people to say that their research has some kind of applied benefit or whatever. I just listened to uh, uh, someone reading Richard Feynman's Cargo Cult Science again, and he was talking about how he was talking to some like astronomer, I think, about who was going to go like defend his research to some group, and he was going to have to say like what's the applied value of it and Feynman said to this guy well there is none and this guy was like yeah but I have to say there is because otherwise they're gonna like take my funding away or whatever and it's like it's very hard to walk that line of like it would be great if there was but it's also okay if there's not like how do you value something without creating a perverse incentive for everyone to claim that they have that thing yeah well, well and and I think that that's a it's it, it's such a trap because now you're making a new claim that hasn't been tested, right? So, you know, you did your laboratory work or your whatever, and, and maybe the claims are, are, you know, have been really well vetted and they're very credible. And now you're saying this will help with problem X out in the real world. Well, that's a brand new claim. And, and you know, and now now you're, and if you're saying all the credibility that you gave me before should just transfer over to this new thing, I, I think that's that's another way that we think that we're gaining the public's trust, but we're actually working working against it because we're not doing it in the way that we're supposed to get it, which is mm-hmm. through this process of verifiability and, and checking and all that. Yeah, I think this incentive to um, emphasize the relevance or the, the real-world applications of your finding it makes more sense for that to affect people's behavior at the beginning of research projects than at the end, right? So I'm actually not opposed to that influencing the research projects that people decide to do. Um, While I sort of appreciate the argument that we don't necessarily know which findings um, are going to have an impact and which aren't, I don't think we have no idea. Um, I think we can make educated guesses about what are more worthwhile um, ways to spend time. And so I think that's it's fine that that influences the research projects that people take on. But I think it becomes problematic when people decide to take on something that um, that may not really have a lot of like applied relevance and then are put in positions where they feel like they have to um, present it as if it does. Hmm. So how, I mean, how do we convey this stuff to the public because I think that I think there's a like scientists I mean the the fact that we do it to the extent that we already do in some sense is impressive but you know we often don't do it enough right and and you see whenever there's you know we've seen this a lot over the replicability debate that you know in in the moment revealing a mistake revealing a flaw especially if it feels like a, it's approaching the level of a systemic flaw that you're trying to make a systemic correction to it's really difficult because in the moment it is people are gonna shit on you and they're they're gonna dunk on you for for what you've been doing um you know and and i think like the you know what all three of us would agree is that that needs to be done and in the long run it's worth it but i you know there's also the matter of like how how do we do a better job of explaining to the public that a healthy science 
you know, a, a science that never shows any errors is not a healthy science and that, that this is part of it and that the way you should be evaluating scientific claims is not by trying to play amateur. I mean, if you can, certainly if people can validly play amateur science, scientists with the actual technical details, they should. But that yeah. beyond that, you know, trying to sort of critique the specific science, that there's another another route to trust, which is looking at the process that it comes out of. Mm-hmm. But like, how do we... How do how do we how do we teach people that? I mean, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, I I have the intuition that that's a difficult thing to teach people, and that it would be easier to say, like, uh, this like flawless um, field is something that you should have more trust in. But um, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure that maybe we we could be underestimating the public, like. Maybe the public already knows yeah, that's, that and understands that. That's what I was going to say is I think they already have that bullshit detector and it's not completely <laughs> wrong. And when I teach about replicability, like some of the reaction I get, and these are undergrads, so it's not a representative sample of the lay public, but is like, yeah, I thought that maybe like some of this stuff was bullshit. And like, it's like almost like they're like thanking me for giving them back the agency to like also have an opinion and also like make a judgment. And of course that can go too far. And of course there are some scientific things that are shocking and surprising and true. Um, But I think giving them some permission to be skeptical and not believe everything that science or science journalists say. But I think you're like, I think Sanjay, you're on something like just like teaching them to look for the signs that the, the community that's producing this science is itself like accountable and, and um, prioritizes like error detection and correction and verification and things like that. And I don't know exactly how you can tell that from the outside, but that's, I think, a key thing to look for. Like that's something I could imagine someone not knowing that that's what they should look for and then it being helpful just to know like, oh yeah, okay. Instead of like asking myself about the result, ask myself about the process that led to the result. Yeah, there was this really interesting news story a few weeks back that was it was out of physics and it was about a dispute over I couldn't even tell you something to do with what water does when it gets really cold um uh that but like one of so so like I have no fucking clue what's going on here from a substantive perspective right but I'm I'm reading this article and it gets to the point, and there are these kind of two teams that have these very different results. And a lot of it was based on simulations because this is, so they had sort of competing simulations because it's something that's really hard to test empirically. Um, and it got to the point where it comes out that like one lab wasn't providing their code to the other lab. And so even though I had no idea what the technical, like how to evaluate on substantive grounds who's right or wrong, as soon as I saw that, it's like, oh, I can I can tell as someone who knows how science is supposed to work that that should be a source of right. concern, yeah. right? And so I, th- I think there are things, that's kind of what I was saying before, when we can we can probably teach people yeah. to recognize the form of a valid argument in science, which is or, one that, that provides people the logic and the evidence rather than telling them to accept that someone who knows what they're doing came to the conclusion. Yeah, or like any of the other like kind of arguments that are not sound you know there's that hierarchy of like the soundness of arguments and so things like that are appeals to the researchers status or prestige or their institution status or prestige that should be a red flag if that's substituting for actual evidence or or if like the author is defending themselves against criticisms by like denigrating the status of their critics or things like that or you know yeah not sticking to the substantive points i think that should be a red flag yeah. And especially I think what you said is super important when that substitutes, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, scientists are human beings. They have egos and reputations and whatever. So if they're also doing that, right. you know, it, it sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, I think I think looking for the substitution, that's to me like the doing it is the yellow flag. The substituting mm-hmm. is the red flag. Right, right. I, so I think what you said is really important. So it's it doesn't just become ice. <laughs> oh, there's so there's like two different forums of ice at different. I couldn't even fucking tell you. I'll see if I can dig it up. It was honestly, it was it was a really interesting. Despite it was the, the reporting was superb because it was if you were a physicist, you could probably follow the arguments. But it was like a super compelling read, regardless. And the stuff was was explained about as well as 
any human being could explain it. I'll see well, if I can dig it up and yeah. put it in the show notes. But yeah. Can I end with, or I don't know if we're ready to end, but I have a public service announcement for anybody who wants to show the Naomi Oreskes video in their class because I had the first day of class yesterday for my replicability seminar. And I showed it, but I showed it right after the John Oliver's Last Week Tonight segment on the scientific mm-hmm. replicability issues. And it yeah. ends, I don't know if you've seen that segment, but it ends with like a three-minute spoof on TED Talks, Todd Talks, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> but then I showed that and I was like, and now I'm going to show you a TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> and it's literally probably one of, I've only probably watched like three or four TED Talks in my life, but it was kind of funny. That, yeah. that is funny. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I mean, it's pretty awesome that she's using the format for what it's supposed to be used for. And, and uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great watch. And mm-hmm. um, Samina, I, th- I, I think you're the one that put it on my radar. So yeah. thanks for I probably heard that. about it. I know it was from one of my philosopher friends, but I don't remember which one, either Fiona Fiddler or Anna Alexandrova or maybe someone else. I don't know. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Hooray for philosophers. Yeah. Hooray for women in the philosophy and history of science. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where we've had, uh, yeah, we've gotten a lot of value out of that. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you, listeners, for listening. This has been The Black Goat, and we will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.